Good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Joe. I'm the campus pastor out here at the Ridge. And man, I missed you guys last week. What a, a wonderful privilege it was um, to be out at Sterling. But man, I love it being here and sharing God's word with you guys. And I missed you lots. So enough of that. Um, if you have Luke, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke uh, chapter 15, verses one and two, and then we're going to be looking and unpacking in more detail verses 11 to 32, Luke chapter 15. But while you're turning there, let's pray. Lord, we are incredibly grateful that we are able to gather together as your people um, to hear you speak to us, to challenge our hearts, um, to minister to us, um, to draw us in and it's just, it's just incredibly uh, wonderful that we are able to be in your presence. Because as we've just sung, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And so, Lord, we ask that this moment won't rush us by. We won't uh, tune out or just get through this. But rather, Lord, that you would speak to us, speak to our hearts, speak to our souls. May we come away this morning in awe of the wonder of our God, in awe of his love for us as individuals. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, we're going to be reading verses 1 and 2 just to give us a bit of context this morning. And then we're going to dive into verses 11 to 32 and unpack that in more detail. Verse 1 and 2 says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That's drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So at the beginning of this passage, we find ourselves with two different groups of people. We find ourselves with a, a group of people who are notoriously bad. That is the tax collectors and sinners. And then we've got the other group, which are in the eyes of society, the, the righteous, the great uh, uh, people to look up to in religion, and that is the Pharisees and the scribes. But as we read this and, and look at Luke and, and we unpack this text and we see this, man, it doesn't necessarily stir up any emotion in our hearts when we read these, about these two groups, does it? Um, but in Jesus' day, in Luke, in who he's writing to, as they saw this and read this or were in the situation, in either part of either one of these groups, it would have stirred up emotion in them and it would have brought something to their hearts. And, and the reason for that is because when we think of tax collectors and sinners, man, it doesn't, it doesn't bring much to mind. Man, we don't necessarily like tax, do we? We don't like SARS. Sorry, Diane. Um, she works for SARS. We don't necessarily like SARS. Um, they tax us. When we think of tax, sometimes we often complain about the petrol price and how much we've been taxed on our petrol and how ridiculous that is. But really, uh, it's not that bad. In, even if we think of Jesus' day, when we th think of tax collectors, most of us will think of Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he who climbed up into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to. And if you don't go to church often, that just happened. Um, that's the song that uh, we grew up in Sunday school listening to. And Zacchaeus is a small little chap um, who did some bad stuff. Man, we think he's quite cute. He didn't do any wrong. And man, he, we know that he took 30 rand when he was only meant to take 20 rand and he pocketed 10. But, but why is that so bad? Well, tax collectors are extremely hated in Jesus' day. And I want you to just look at the text it says tax collectors and sinners. 
Luke singles out that tax collectors were there. He doesn't single out anyone else, any other sinner that was there in all the acts. Rather, he singles out tax collectors. And it was because tax collectors were hated because of who they worked for. I've mentioned this before. They've, they worked for Rome. And uh, Rome was the ruling power of the day. Um, they pretty much ruled the world, the known world. They had a, a territory that ran from modern-day England to modern-day India, which is a massive piece of territory to rule. And difficult to rule even in modern-day times. If we were to think, how would a country rule that period, it would be rather tough. And, and if we had an uprising, man, it would be a little bit easier in our day. We could just send a few jets and a couple of drones, and there'd be a kaboom, and things would be over and done with. But in, um, in, in Jesus' day, in, when Rome ruled, it was difficult. Because if the army was on one side of the territory, and an uprising happened on the other side of the territory, it would take a year for your army just to get there. And that would mean you would have people that have risen up, destroyed your uh, rule in their area, established forts and built up walls, and it would be difficult then to get it back. And so how do you rule such a big land? You need one heck of a big army. And a big army requires lots of weapons, a lot of armor, a lot of food, and a lot of wages. How do you get that? You tax and you tax those nations in whom you rule over heavily, and that's when the tax collectors come into play. But not only do you need a big army, you need to be brutal. You need to make sure that the nations around you know that they should not mess with you, and so when someone does rise up against you, someone does mess with you, you make sure you're extremely brutal. Historians tell of this particular story of when one city who raised up against Rome um, and tried to fight back against Rome, Rome sent their armies in and they crucified 20,000 men, women, and children down every entrance of that city. So that villages who, and other towns, as they came into the city, would have to walk through that, trade, go home, and the message would spread don't mess with Rome. And so a tax collector was someone who grew up next to you. He was maybe a mate who would come over to your house and sleep over, stay in one of your bunk beds, eat your cornflakes, play hide-and-go-seek with you. And then he, when he grew up, or she, when she grew up, would go along and buy the right to become a tax collector with their own money and go work for the enemies of your people who had raped and killed your children, you can see why they were hated. I don't even know a tax collector of Jesus' day, and I don't like them. They weren't nice. And then, and then you've got part of this group, we've got sinners. Now, again, as we grow up in church, sinners doesn't really mean much, because when we are uh, in church, what do we hear a lot? You're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. And while that is right, in Jesus' day, sinners was a particular class of people. Um, it was those who did bad things. It included the prostitutes, it included the adulterer, it included the, uh, um, included the drunkard, it included all those people. But it also included a group of people that might not necessarily have been a part of that group. It included um, those who struggled with uh, physical deformities. So if you were lame, if you were deaf, you were dumb, you were blind, you would have been called a part of this group of sinners. Wrongly so. But in Jesus' day, it was understood if you struggled with a physical deformity, it was because of your sin or because of your parents' sin. And so this first group of people, we have a vast variety of people here. 
We have the notorious worst of the worst tax collectors. We have prostitutes. We have drunkards. We have people that just don't go to church or, or to the temple. We have those who might be good people but are deformed. That is the one group, outcast by society. And then the other group over here is the religious elites, the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, the Pharisees, to become a Pharisee, you had to be pretty hardcore. To become a Pharisee, you had to have memorized the Torah, which is the five first, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You would have had to have memorized it. And let me say that again. You had to memorize those first five books. Now, if, let, it's an honest, open space here. Let's be honest. It's a safe place to hear. How many of us, when we have done our Bible reading, and we've decided, man, we're going to read from Genesis to Revelation. When we get to Leviticus and we get to Numbers, we go, oh, Matthew 1. And we go there and we jump. Yeah, I know it. I know it because I've done it before. This is difficult. Let's just go to the Gospels. And we start there. These guys are hardcore. They pray more than you and I pray. They fasted more than you and I fast. They were extremely strict when keeping God's law. Man, I just think of the Sabbath. The, you must not work on the Sabbath. Uh, they took that so seriously. They said, what does working look like? Man, we shouldn't walk a certain distance on a day. And they would literally count their steps on a Sabbath to make sure that they did not go over that number. They were hardcore. You might have a what will Jesus do bracelet. You might, every shirt you own might have Jesus written on it. These guys are far more hardcore than us. But having said that, this group of men were extremely self-righteous. Extremely self-righteous. They thought they were the greatest thing um, since sliced bread. I don't know if they, I'm sure they had sliced bread back then. They had the greatest thing since sliced bread. And, um, and man, they thought they were great. And that's problematic. Now, have that in mind as we read this text, because this group is grumbling that this group, the, the, the sinners, are coming closer to Christ. That he's preaching hope to them, that he's preaching the gospel, that he's preaching the kingdom to them, and they are grumbling and upset. And it's with this in mind that Jesus tells the parable that we're going to look at. Let's look at verse 11. It says this. So how I'm going to do it is I'm going to read, and then I'm going to stop, and we're going to chat a bit, and then I'll read some more, stop, etc., etc., Verse 11 says this, and he said that um, there was a young man who had, uh, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Let's stop there. So what we have is an extremely confident young man, like most young men are extremely confident. He, he feels that he knows what life is all about. He knows how life should be lived. He knows how life should be enjoyed. He knows what to, things should be done, but only if he had the finances to do it all. 
to live the way he wanted. And so what he would do is he would go to his father and say, give me the inheritance I would receive when you died so that I might go and live this particular life. Now, it doesn't say so in the text, but as a father, I can only imagine this conversation happened a number of times. That this young man came to his dad and said, give me my inheritance. And his father said, no. And he said, give it to me. And he said, no. And a few days later, give it to me and no. And after a while, after having his ear chewed off, he said, yes. But I want you to notice here the gracious love of the father to this younger son. Extremely gracious. The father lets his younger son go out and live the way he wants to in the hope that he would tire himself out and come back again. Because, let's be honest, the father does not have to say yes, right? He doesn't. He doesn't have to give it. I mean, if my son, he's only 14 months old now, so this wouldn't happen. But if my son had to come to me and said, do this, I would say, no, get to your room before I clap you. Get out and plow with your older brother before I plow you. Like I say, it's going to happen. But, but yet, what happens is, the father is gracious that he says, go so that you might learn that this is what life is not about. And church, I want you to know that God sometimes does that to us. We sometimes pray and say, Lord, give it to me. And when he does it, we go and do it anyway. We sometimes go after things we know we shouldn't, but do it because we want it. And God graciously in his sovereignty allows us to go and do it so that we might realize that that's what life is not about. That we might realize that that man or woman that we are pursuing after is not what we need. That, that business adventure that we might need to do some dodgy deals in, but to get that money, that, that actually money does not satisfy. That that trip that you desperately want to go on, or that thing you really want, or that experience you really need to have, will not satisfy you. And God, in His grace, allows us to go off so that when we find ourselves in the pigsty, longing for the pig's pods, that we would come home. Grace upon grace as the, uh, uh, that the father does here by letting his son go off. But I want you to stop. As we hear the story, who do you think, out of the two groups, that the story is appealing to the most? Who, has been, who so far does this resonate with? It's the, it's the tax collectors and sinners. They have their whole lives by this religious elite group have told them, you are worthless, you cannot come back, you are nothing, you are far off from the Father. And as they hear the story, they realize that they find themselves in a similar place. And they are probably asking themselves the question, how do I, like this younger son, restore myself? What is the retribution that needs to happen to me so that I might come back to the Father? And so keep that in mind as we read this, because uh, Jesus is going to give us some indication on how that happens. Let's read in, in verse 17. It says this, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, 
treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father's. There's two things that take place here that every person has done, either intentionally or unintentionally, to become a Christian, to be restored to the Father. And the first one is that he came to himself. The first thing that the son needs to realize that his problem started the moment he left the home and went off to that faraway country. The the son needed to realize that the life that he had pursued after was not the thing that he needed. The son needed to come to himself and go, what I need is my father. There is no one that can help me. I want you to see, see this in this text. No one gave him anything. There is no other hope. No one is willing to help. There is no other way except to go back to the Father. And we need to realize that the Jesus coming to Christ is the only way in which we can find help. It's the only way in which we can be restored. And it takes him some time. Because he first finds himself in need with nothing. Where does he go first? To another citizen to hire himself out as a servant. And it's only then does he come to the realization, what I need is not somebody else. What I need is not help from this person or that person. But what I need is the help of the Father. Now, friends, I want you to know that I cannot help you. No one else in this room can help you. The only help that you can find is at the Father's house. Only help you can find is with the Father. And the only way that you can get this through the Son, Jesus Christ. The second thing that we see here is that he had to go. Now that might seem silly, but he had to turn and go. And there's a difference here between a knowledge of realizing it and an actual going. I think many of us realize that we might need help, but we don't yet go. We, we need to turn away and go. And this is the, the, the image of repentance And this is what repentance is. It's a turning away of the old self, leaving it behind and heading towards the Father. That's what it is. You need to let go of the past, the old way, the way that I want, and now realize that that is worthless. But what I need is God and going towards Him to live with Him and for Him and by Him. It is a returning. So those are the, the two ways in which these tax collectors and sinners would have realized they things that they need to do. Now let's carry on reading because things are about to get a little bit more uh, crazy. Verse uh, 20, And he arose and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And as the son uh, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is absolutely scandalous. Absolutely scandalous grace. Man, just think about it. What has the son done? 
He has come to his father, young in age, thinks he knows what life is about, says, give me my inheritance, which you would have given to me, which I would have received when you died. Essentially, you are dead to me. I don't want to see you again. Takes all that is not his, but his father's, goes into another country, lives a reckless life, brings dishonor to his father's name, dishonor to the family name, loses it all, finds himself in a pigsty, and slithers back home. And what does the father do? He sees him a long way off. Now, the text doesn't say it, but it alludes to it that the father had been looking and longing for his son to come home. Far in a distance, he notices him. We, we don't know how long this period has been. It could be months. It could have been years. But the father has been looking at each moment and praying daily that his son will come home and notices him in a distance far away. He's been looking and longing for him to come home. Friends, the father's longing for you to come home desiring that you would come back to him, though you have drifted far from him, that you might come home. What does the the father do when he sees him? He doesn't cross his arms. So let's hear the story now. He better come and apologize. Let's hear, let's, let's get it straight. How he's going to live, he better have one heck of a story lined up and, and getting cross and ready sitting on the porch. What are you doing here? No, the father runs. And again, that doesn't stir up emotion in us, but in, in Jesus' day, men did not run. It was undignified. But there's so much love and compassion that is being built up in this father's heart for the son that is coming home that dignity goes out the window. Man, he loves him. So he sprints, he runs down, and he embraces and kisses him. Where has the son been? In a pigsty with no hope nothing he hasn't washed he's not clean and Jews and pigs they're just not a good combination but he he does not care how his son is he does not care that his son is unclean he does not care that he's smelly and stinky no he's home so he embraces and kisses him all over what does the son do he breaks out into a speech now we've all done this when we are in trouble and we know we're in trouble and we've been caught out but we haven't been caught out yet hey we, we start to prepare a speech. I know when I was a young kid, when I was in trouble, and I know I've been bust. I've broken a window. I've done something, played with a ball in the house, though my mother said I shouldn't. And she's not home yet. But there's no way of repairing it and fixing it up. Man, I get my speech straight. It wasn't me. It was the dog. It was the friend. I swear I was just walking through the house, and it just the wind came through and blew over the vase. We come up with a story. Yeah, the son has prepared his, his speech and he, he gets there and he, he comes to you and says, I, I've sinned against you and against heaven and, 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 and I, I'm not worthy to be your son. And before he can ask to be a hired servant, the father hears enough and cuts it off. Not listening to that rubbish. Get him a, get him a cloak, get him a, get him a, a gown, get him a cloak. Let's, let's cover him up. Give him a ring for his finger. Let's kill the fattened calf because we're going to celebrate. Absolutely scandalous. And what I love about this is that the father does not allow retribution to take place. He doesn't. There, he takes it upon himself. He doesn't say to his son, yeah, you're right. 
You took what is yours and you squandered it. Now become a servant. Work for a few years. Earn your right back. He doesn't allow the younger son, though he has been foolish and disrespectful, to take any punishment upon himself. None whatsoever. The father takes it upon himself. Go get my ring and put it on his finger. It symbolizes authority and sonship. Go get my cloak and put it on him because that symbolizes cleanliness. My cleanliness for him. Go get my shoes. Go get my fattened calf and go and kill it for him. And friends, this is the wonder of the gospel. Is that the call of the father is to come back, but there is no retribution in which you have to take. Why? Because the cost has already been paid for. Isn't that wonderful? Man, there was a great cost. Great retribution took place. It was with the father sending his son to die for you. To take the punishment. Great death. Great price. But you had to take none of it. All you have to do is simply believe in Jesus Christ. And the price has been paid. And you'll be accepted in. Not as a hired servant. Not as one that has to work hard. No, no. But as a son and daughter clean and there would be a party and the call from the father is to come and when you do there is a promise of celebration absolute joy the the father longs for you to come home if god could long for the paul also known as saul to come to know Christ, he will long for you to do it. Now, if you don't know uh, much about Scripture, uh, there was this guy named uh, Paul, also known as Saul. He, um, Saul was, before he uh, became a Christian, was one of the biggest persecutors of the church. Acts 8 talks about how Paul was ravaging the early church. He had spread the church far and wide. He had uh, killed, he had imprisoned many Christians. And on his way to Damascus, God reveals himself to him miraculously that Paul, uh, that Paul gets saved and comes to know Christ. But Paul says these incredible words in Galatians 1 verse 8, he, uh, uh, 1 uh, verse 16, sorry, he says uh, that God was pleased to reveal his son to me. That, just think about it. Paul is ravaging the church. He, he is killing Christians. And before the Father does it, reveals Christ to him, there is a, he's pleased to do so. There is an emotion. There is a joy. There is an excitement. I'm going to save Paul. Man, how much more does the Father want you to come? How much more will he rejoice at you coming home? There is a party that takes place. There's celebration that happens. He takes you in. He kisses you. He crowns you. He puts a ring on your finger. He puts a cloak around your shoes on your feet. And he kills the fattened calf. And there's a rejoicing that takes place at you coming home. And the motivation behind it all is the Father's love for you. Amazing. Hope you're feeling loved this morning. But I, the readers here... And, and those who are hearing Jesus tell the story probably think that Jesus has finished the story when he gets to this point. And the reason behind this is because some commentators actually suggest that the two parables beforehand are actually part of one big parable. 
And the reason why they say that is because in verse 3 it says, and Jesus told a parable, and then he went and told three stories, but just emphasizing the same point. Does that make sense? And so the first parable he talks about a man who had a hundred sheep. And he uh, loses one, and what he does is he goes off into the far distance, and he goes and searches for that one sheep. He leaves the 99 behind. He seeks far and high and low, far and wide, and he finds that one sheep, and he comes home, and there is a rejoicing that takes place, and there's a celebration. Parable ends. Next parable happens, there's a, there's a story of this lady who has 10 silver coins, a widow. She has 10 silver coins, she loses one of them. So what she does she do? She cleans the whole house, searching, finding, looking for it. And she eventually finds it. this rejoicing that takes place. She invites her friends over and they celebrate. In this story, what do we have? We have a father who has two sons. He loses one. The one comes home. He was lost, but now he's found. There's rejoicing that takes place and they're celebrating. Everyone so far expects the story to end here because the other two have. But Jesus does not. He continues on going. And I think the reason for that is because who out of the two groups that we started off has taken an absolute beating because of this? It's the Pharisees and scribes. Everything that they hold to, Jesus is, while giving love to the tax collectors and sinners, they are hearing things that they don't like, that they might be annoyed with, or they are grumbling about. And so Christ here goes and shows not only is grace extended to the young, younger son, but it's also extended to the older son, to the Pharisees and scribes. Keep that in mind as we read. Let's read verse 25. It says this. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music dancing. Let's just stop there. So the older son is in the field. He has, he's oblivious to everything that's gone on so far. He's been working all day, and he starts to come home, and he hears music and dancing. Now, there are parties, and then there are like proper parties. I know many of us have been to a party before, but there's, there are, we've also been to like a proper party, right? You know the difference between going to a party and a proper party. This here, the celebration that's taking place here, is a proper party. Why? Because the, the older son comes in and he hears what? He hears music and dancing. Man, before he sees people, before he knows what's going on, he hears music and them dancing. They are hoing a proper party right now. They are dancing so loud that he can hear them dancing. There's so much clapping, so much jumping, so much celebrating that's going on because the younger son is home. Man, there's a proper party of celebration because of the younger son. It carries on in verse 26. It says this, And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So he goes to a servant and he asks the servant, um, what's happening? Now, that's probably the first mistake. He should have gone to the father, but he doesn't. He goes to the servant. What's happening? The servant says, your younger son was lost, but now he's home. He's safe and sound. And so your father has uh, thrown a, this massive party uh, for him. We're all celebrating this thing. And what happens is the older son gets angry and refuses to go in. Now, may I just say that this is just cutting off your nose to spite your face, right? 
He, who suffers? The oldest, old, the youngest son, and the brother. I mean, the father. No, they're having a fabulous time inside. But he refuses to go in because he's upset, and so he doesn't enjoy himself. But there's a warning here for us. The warning for us as a church is as as we seek to fill the city of East London with the glory and gospel of Jesus, there are going to be times that there might be someone who comes to know Jesus that we might not be happy about. And you might say, Joe, that's ridiculous. Of course we would be happy with everyone coming to know Christ. But again, I want you to put yourself in the younger brother's shoes. He has a younger brother that's come home. We think celebrate, but, but he has been hurt, has he not? When we, it's not only the father who has been rejected here, but the younger son as well. He had a, a brother who he grew up with, who he played with, who played hide and go seek with, kicked the ball around with. Man, they would, have, they would have had a lot of play fighting and a lot of real fighting. There would have been this bond that only a brother, two brothers can have. And yet when his younger brother goes, he does not only say to his father, you are dead to me, but he also says to the younger, older son, you are dead to me as well. When he leaves and takes an inheritance, the oldest brother's um, finances would have been affected. Ultimately, what he would have inherited would have been uh, belittled and and made smaller because of the younger son. The, The name that the younger son destroyed in his reckless living, the family name was his family name. And so the older son is not happy that his younger son is back, and you can understand why. He's bitter and he's angry and refuses to go in. And there might be someone who is, you've done business with that has taken you to the cleaners. They've left your family with absolutely nothing. And now they've lost everything and they come to know Christ. There is a danger that you might be bitter, but the call of the gospel is to rejoice. It might be an ex-spouse, someone who had multiple affairs, left you brokenhearted, and also your, uh, your children brokenhearted. They might come to know Christ. The, the danger is that you might become bitter, but the call of the gospel is that you need to rejoice. Why? Because bitterness leaves you outside the party. Bitterness and anger means you do not get to experience all that the Father has for you. That's just what it does. But the call is to forgive and move on so that you might come inside like the younger, a younger brother and be a part where the Father is and rejoice in all that He has for you. Man, we, get, we miss out so much because of bitterness and, and unforgiveness. Leave it alone and come inside and enjoy the Father. But I want to also point out here the incredible love of the Father. So let's, let's, let's move on. And he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. Verse 29. And he answered his father said, Look, these many years I have served you. The word there is slaved. I have slaved for you. I have never disobeyed your commandments. Probably a lie. 
Yet you have never, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, you, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to his, uh, to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It would have been understandable if the father forgot about his older son, wouldn't it? His younger son has been gone for months, if not years, has come home. He thought he was potentially dead and is now alive. He's come back home. There's, a, there's sonship again. There's reunion that's happened. There's a big party that is happening inside. There's steak. There's music. There's dancing that's so loud you can hear it outside. It would have been understandable just for a moment that if the father forgot about his older son who has been with him the whole time. But I want you to notice that the father's eyes aren't only looking far out in the distance to see where his younger son is, but also just outside the house for where his older son is. He has looked out of a window, he has seen, looked out of a door, and he notices that the older son is there not inside, not enjoying it. So what does he do? He goes to him and he entreats him, come in, come in, begs him, pleads with him. He doesn't just say, man, if you don't want to come inside, fine, stop. When you're done pouting, come inside. We're having a fun time. He doesn't do that. The father is just so gracious that he extends love to this younger son. Come in. There's something that's happening inside. And again, there's a warning for us as we want to see the city of East London filled with the gospel and glory of Jesus Christ, is that we might celebrate at the coming home, and rightfully so, of the younger sons or daughters, of the, the prostitutes and drug addicts and adulterers all coming to know Christ. Man, that is glorious and we should rejoice. But the danger is, and often it happens in church, that we celebrate that those who are far off come to know Christ, but those who are just outside, we can be judgmental to them. Because they're self-righteous, they think they're great, they think they're the best, and so we can be judgmental and not extend grace to them. But that's not the Father's heart. Church, the Father's heart is even towards those who think there's nothing wrong, who think they've served well, never broken a commandment, slaved, the Father's heart is for them to come inside. Because I want you to notice that they aren't inside. Simple, but they aren't inside. They aren't enjoying what the Father has to say. They're just not. They're not far off like the younger son, but man, they're not enjoying what the Father has to say. But he entreats them in, and so we should as well entreat them to come and enjoy all that the Father has. But look at the younger, older son, sorry. The older son makes the most ridiculous request in verse 29. He says, you yet you never gave me a young goat. He asks for a goat. I mean, not, not, he didn't say boat. He didn't say, like, can you give me a yacht? He says, can you give me a, a goat? Now, a goat, that's what he wants. He asks the father, you, like, if you could have given me a young goat, that's ridiculous. That's just, that's just a goat. I, I'm, I'm blown away by the fact that that's what the older son wanted. Because this is what self-righteousness does, church. It makes us settle for something far less than what the father actually wants to give us. 
Self-righteousness makes us want a goat rather than all that the Father has. And we don't ever receive it because we never get it. But if rather we could just come inside and enjoy all that the Father has for us, man, we would realize that everything he owns is ours. The, the riches of God is available to us through Christ and Christ alone. And when we come to him and rest in the grace of the Father, man, we experience all that the Father has for you. All of it. But when we think, man, I can do it, I serve hard, I work hard, I make myself right with God. Man, we settle for something as simple as we go, yet we never receive it. We miss out on so much because we want a goat because of our self-righteousness. Now, the story doesn't tell us whether or not the younger son ever comes inside or not. The invitation's there for the Pharisees. Do you want to come? They never, you never, it's just open-ended. But might I say that we find ourselves in the older son spot. If one if we have thought of somebody else throughout this whole sermon, oh man, I wish they would hear this. It's more likely that we are leaning towards being an older son. We're an older son when we think that I am right with God and I will one day get into heaven because of what I have done, not because of what Christ has done. Man, we are so close to being inside and enjoying what God has to do for us and wants for us, but we miss it because we think we can do it. It's absolutely scandalous grace by the Father. We're going to go over to communion now, but the Father gives us grace towards those who have lived a life of license the way they want to. He calls them in. But he also calls in those who think, man, I am great, I have done enough, I am good enough. He calls them in as well. And whether you are a Christian, you would have found yourself in one of two of those categories before you came to know Christ. And the call of the Father was to come in. And so as we partake of this communion, I want you to remember the scandalous grace of the Father's love towards you. Man, if, if you know Christ, He has extended love to you because once you were far off or once you were near, realizing and thinking you deserve to be in. But here he's called you in because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you. And maybe, maybe you are not Christian this morning. And I, 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 I want to encourage you as, as these elements are handed out, don't, don't partake of it yet. But come to me or Mark afterwards. Man, we would love to help you journey and come to the Father. To make it home, we would love to do that for you. Don't leave it because there's nowhere else to go. But there's a party of rejoicing waiting for you as you come home. So I'm going to pray. Then I'm going to ask Brian and, 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 and Mark to come and, and hand out the elements. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we are incredibly grac- grateful because of your gracious love towards us. So undeserved. We don't deserve it, Lord. How this Father has come and reached out to us, Lord, that is incredibly great. And Lord, I pray that for us as a congregation that we would just know that you love us deeply. May we leave this morning knowing that the Father's love for us is great. Regardless of the situation we find ourselves in, regardless of our circumstances, whether good or bad, it is because the Father loves us that we can continue on. 
And Lord, I pray for that this morning. I pray, Lord, for those that don't know Christ that are sitting here. Maybe the the younger sons that are far off. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them in. That they would realize there's nowhere else to go. No one can offer help other than the Father through Christ. Lord, bring them home, I pray. I pray for the older sons that might be sitting in this room who think they're good because they're good with you because they are good. I pray, Lord, that they would notice that they are missing out on so much, that what you have for them is far greater than what they think they have for themselves, that they would come in and enjoy the party as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.